0: Welcome. We continue through our study of Munster this evening, but first let us open in a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for allowing us to gather here this evening. We look at church history, and I pray that we just aren't reading facts, that we are looking into the history of your church, that we learn from uh, from history, and that we have a deeper knowledge of how you work through your church, uh, the good, and we look at the bad, and that we can learn from that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we looked at the genesis, the beginning of the Anabaptist movement in Zurich, and some of the leaders that developed out of that movement. Uh, We looked at the martyrdom of most of the early leaders And I made a point at the end of that study that the death of those early leaders who built these ideologies, built these theologies, some we would agree with, some we would not agree with, but as they, one by one, are dying, I made the point that lesser men take their place. And we see the unfolding of Munster from these men taking the original ideologies and turning him into something that is entirely destructive. So, this evening we're going to look at the first blockade of Munster. And first we'll look into the city itself where it where it began some of its beginnings, just some basic facts about Munster and then we'll move into the political, geopolitical aspects of what's happening in Munster. I sent out Earlier, two character sheets of uh, Melichor Hoffman and Bernard Rothman. Both of those characters are vital in understanding what happens in Munster, but it would just take too long to talk about all the stuff that they do. So I figured I can just give you the context of those characters in writing. And if you haven't read that, if you haven't gotten that email, you can go back and look for it and just read it even after the study. and might make a little bit more sense some of the things... Uh, that we talk about. So All right, a little brief history on Munster. It has its roots in the 6th century AD. It uh, it's founded as uh, a monastery in 804. Monasteries are, are are built in in that area. It's renamed Munster in 1068. Munster is literally Latin for monastery. So that's what that's what the name means. It was founded in a very important economic intersection. So a lot of trade was coming from different, area, different regions. They would end up in the city of Munster. An important trade route was wool from England. So over time, Munster became a very wealthy city. A lot of merchants, a lot of trades would go through there. And because of that, it's one of the main reasons why Munster was chosen as the city where the Anabaptists would make their, their stand or they would wait for the second coming of Christ because they knew it could last, outlast anyone that besieged the city. Uh, not to mention, was it very rich in food and resources? It had uh, a river going right down the middle uh, through the city. They had access to water. Not only that, but it was, it was fortified by two thick walls around the entire city. I think, I think it was about 100 feet tall. And... It's surrounded by two moats. It had cannon. It was, it was easily defendable uh, for anyone inside the city. So it could outlast uh, a, an army uh, attacking it for, for quite some time. So it's, a, it's an important economic uh, intersection, as I mentioned. And geographically, of course, Munster is located in the, in the northeast of Germany. And it is near the present-day border of, of uh, the Netherlands. So early in the Reformation, Munster was actually a model city where Lutherans and Catholics were coexisting peacefully. Uh, tensions were still very high, of course, but for the most part, uh, those two communities were, were coexisting in a peaceful manner. At the time, Munster had around 9,000 inhabitants, and as the Anabaptists come in, that will grow, well, it'll grow and it'll go down for, for another reason but at the time about 9,000 people inhabited the city <clears throat> some of the some of the architectural wonders or things that it, munster is known for architecturally it has st paul's cathedral there uh, along with 10 other churches five of which the architectural majesty is most known in munster even outside of churches in larger cities and as you would approach munster you would see see these steeples uh, goes straight into the sky, silhouette the sky. It was a beautiful picture. And as you and I would go into Munster, we might see this architecture as beautiful. But at the time, the people saw this these architectural structures as a reminder of the church not really caring about them at all. Because if you remember back in, in lesson one, when Conrad Grable was going through the New Testament looking for... W- what does New Testament say of what we should be doing, what we should not be doing? He found the idea of mandatory tithes not in the New Testament. And what these mandatory tithes were going to, of course, was building these cathedrals. So for the people that living in Munster, these, these churches, these magnificent buildings were reminders of the church's really indifference to their welfare. Of course, this would lay a foundation that would people, of course, right? So Roman Catholics and Lutherans both don't want to pay taxes for these churches. Uh, the, the, the atmosphere is ripe for, for revolution, for change, right? And we're going to see these Anabaptists take advantage of this atmosphere, of course. And it, remember, maybe, I think I mentioned this last week, the church doesn't pay property taxes, At this time, and also, if you're in the church, if the prince bishop calls a draft or a a muster of troops for whatever engagement that he needs to do, if you're part of the church, you you cannot be called in for this draft, so they are excluded. And uh, in the in the convents, the nuns they would they would build much like similar to the Amish. They build furniture. They would uh, make these beautiful tapestries and a lot of products that the normal economy would make as well. So craftsmen would make furniture as well, but they would sell it in the local economy. Well, the nuns would make this, this stuff and then just donate it to the community. Just put it out there. And of course, if you had the option to buy a beautiful piece, piece of furniture or wait for a nun to build a beautiful piece of furniture, you'd probably just wait and get it for free. So they saw this as an infringement in the economy. It was an attack on, on free trade or on trade in general. But, of course, this has been happening for hundreds of years. But we're to a point now where in the Reformation, the, especially when Martin Luther translates the, the Bible into German, people can, people can think for themselves. They're throwing off authority. And now they're, they're questioning what they're doing here. So again, the atmosphere is ripe for revolution. I mentioned this a little bit last time uh, briefly, but the peasants' war, the peasants' revolt was a big deal. It changed a lot of uh, people's minds as far as looking at the church. It disillusioned a lot of people. It changed Luther, it changed it really ch- it changed anyone that was a part of of that of that war. Including the government. So after that initial revolt or, or the peasant war, the the local governments in these cities, the prince bishops decided to give a little more autonomy to cities to kind of placate the masses. Maybe okay, if they're if they're rebelling for more freedom or more authority, well, let's give them a little bit more, and maybe we can we can uh, assemble order again, and we can get back to normal essentially. And Munster, of course, was 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 no exception to this. In 1525, the Prince Bishop at the time, Frederick von Weid, he allowed autonomy from the church. The, the muster to have more autonomy or have autonomy from the church by establishing a city council uh, of 24 members. So the city would be run, run by the city council, as well as uh, co mayors or two mayors yeah, in this government, and they would they would run they would run the city. They probably had two mayors. It was probably an early checks and balances system. So one mayor didn't monopolize or have too much influence on the council and vice versa. So it was, I think it was more likely a check some balances. It doesn't really work that way, but that was the original intent. <clears throat> but before we get to the government of, of Munster, I, I mentioned a, a prince bishop. Well, what is a prince bishop? Uh, prince bishop is pretty much a feudal lord. He's not ecclesiastical in any manner. He's not uh, part of the church, really, even though it's called prince bishop yeah usually prince bishops get their their property or their land either by marriage or connections or even conquest or simply they just purchase what they own from the previous owner so the thing with with prince bishops though with what they own they pretty much have unrestrained power it's very there's very few limits on what they can do they can enact. They put edicts out anytime they want. They can they can tighten their grip on the city. They can loosen their grip on the city. Of course, at this time, they want to bring order. Like I said, right? They want to give more authority to the cities to bring order. And this uh, Prince Prince uh, von Weed is no exception. So, so we have this new city council, twenty four members. Uh, the council consists of both Lutherans and Catholics. And all of them, both the Lutherans and the Catholics, are from the, the uh, Crafts Guild, which is built of merchants and tradesmen and stuff, probably as a reaction to, like I was, we were saying, or I was mentioning before, the nuns building furniture, putting it in the market. This is so they can have more control of what's going on. So they're from the, the Crafts Guild, and they, they do that, like I said, for representation. And it's more of a it's, – it's the first representative government we have in Munster, especially – uh, and even in that local area, they even built a city council for them, which was it actually was a pretty majestic building. Okay, so moving on to the character of Bernard Rothman, uh, he—I mentioned him in the the writing, the document I gave you guys, so I won't really go into his background. <clears throat> but again, back to the Peasant War, the Peasant War changed Bernard from a from a. Staunch Catholic to a Catholic dissident, to a Lutheran, to eventually an Anabaptist. And in his preaching, once he he turns to the Anabaptist movement, he not only preaches against infant baptism, but he also starts preaching against private property. So he sees that private property, of course, we talked about apostolic communism in lecture one. He sees private property as unbiblical and blasphemous. And actually, he eventually will get to the point where he sees any ownership of any property as the root of evil for men. So he, it's not man's nature. It is actually man's environment. We'll get to that later. So he starts starts preaching on against infant baptism. And, of course, what hits the wall a little bit more even than infant baptism, of course, it is preaching against private property or trade or taking all the wealth and, and, and spreading it out, of course, throughout the city. And, of course, the, the lower-income inhabitants of Munster like the message. And it's not just the Protestants that like the message. It's the Roman Catholics, was the Catholics as well. The idea of paying these tithes of the church is very cumbersome. So they hear this preaching, and a lot of them are agreeing with, with what Bernard Rothman is saying. And of course, once you hit the wallet book, you hit the pocketbook of the elites, they're going to react. And that's exactly what uh, Bishop Von Weed does. He initially asks Bernard to stop preaching in public, stop agitating the public. Bernard agrees for a very short while, and he reconsiders. I'm not sure if he does it himself or somebody talks him back into it. Most likely a mixture of both. But he, in his reconsideration, he writes to the bishop, he says, not to let the, quote, godless oppressors escape the deserved punishment of heaven. Because my conscience is clear, I have no doubt that I can rely on God's mercy. He will protect me and rescue me from danger when my enemies fall upon me like a lion. I know that at this moment I am surrounded by a pack of dogs and a horde of evildoers." This is an insight into what, how Bernard Rothman is viewing himself. Eventually, he's going to view himself as a prophet. This is a very beginning prophet-like language for, for Rothman. And this letter incites the bishop to want Bernard out of the city. Right? So Bernard, not only does he just refuse the initial request of the bishop to stop preaching, but he actually accepts it, and then he, rec- he recants that. So that's even that's probably even worse than just refusing initially. The bishop sees him as a loose cannon, wild, a wild loose cannon. And he's going to pressure the council, the city council, to, to exile Rothman out of the city. All right, so who's on the council? Right. So if the bishop is going to the council to get rid of Bernard Rothman, who's on the council? Well... The, there's a lot of influential, like I said, there's craftsmen, right? Roman Catholics, or Catholics and Lutherans are on this council. And, a lot, and most of them are very influential, right? It makes sense. They have influential people to help with with whatever trade they have. Some of them are siding with Bernard Rothman in his preaching. So he's been agitating for a while, and he's lured some of these influential city council members on his side. One of the, the most influential, probably the most influential, council members, a man named Bernard Nipperdaling. Remember that name? That's a very important name in this epic, Bernard Nipperdaling. He actually becomes a a follower of the radical movement from Jan Mathis, who remember that name as well. That's in the character sheet, not the one I sent uh, today, but the one I sent last week. His name's on there. Jan Mathis, very important name. So Bernard Nipperdaling becomes a follower of the resistance movement from from Jan Mathis, but he keeps his conversion secret from the council because it's at the time the radical movement hasn't really taken a foothold yet. He could still be he could be thrown out of council at any moment, so he keeps he keeps the conversion secret from the fellow council members. <clears throat> and there is speculation of why Bernard Nipperdaling... Does side with with Rothman because he is pretty he 's pretty out there in what he 's saying. Uh, Bishop von Weed earlier previous to this, actually kidnaps Nipperdaling while he 's going on a business trip. He kidnaps Nipperdaling, throws him in jail, and then ransoms him back. This is pretty common practice uh, back in the time, but before he gets ransomed, nipperdaling's toes or feet are crushed as they put on these iron boots on his feet as he's a prisoner. So they crush his feet and he has his limp for the rest of his life. And most speculate that this grudge he, he holds against uh, the bishop, it feeds into him going over to Bernard Rothman. Maybe not even because he believes what Rothman's saying, but because he wants to spite the bishop, which, which could be true. Uh, February 1532, this is an important date. Bernard Nipperdaling and the follow, some of the radical followers meet in Nipperdaling's home and they sign a pact. And this pact is very – historians will say this pact is very reminiscent of the founding fathers of America. They all gather together and they swear their reputations, their finances, everything they have into the purpose of freedom and to, to resist oppression, to remove the tyrant, which is the bishop. From Munster and let them be a free city to do what they want. This is, this is the pact that they signed together at Nipperdaling's home. Of course, those aspirations sound high and mighty, but right after this signing of the document, they rampaged the city for, <laughs> for about 24 hours. So they break into the churches in Munster, they're ripping down the ashes of old uh, priests and their, uh, destroying the, the urns and, and scattering their ashes around. They're rampaging for about 24 hours, and this is right after they signed this document for fighting oppression. Apparently, the the way to do that is to to destroy churches, and along with destroying churches, they said to have a book burning, a good old fashioned book burning. I guess, I guess this is this is not this is old. This is new at the time, so it's not old fashioned for them. It's not old fashioned, but for us, wait. Right? A good old-fashioned book burning. What are they throwing in the fire? Well, they're actually throwing Latin Bibles, right? Because those are evil. Those are other categories. So they throw the Latin Bibles in there. They're throwing in devotionals. They're throwing in some Thomas Aquinas, some poets, some art. Uh, And towards the end, even Bernard uh, Rothman is throwing in his own sermons into the fire. And he's yelling, quote, The truth of the Holy Scripture shall triumph, as he's throwing in his own sermons. And yes, the irony is thick, and it should be. So we're seeing the conflict move from words, right? So it goes from Rothman agitating the city with these proclamations against infant baptism and private property, to the bishop saying, get out of the city. And now we have the pact sign at Nipperdaling's home and the rampaging... Of Munster for about that twenty four hours, and the book burning really it was probably the the book burning in the marketplace that really sent it over so it 's moved from act from words to action and there's now a big tension between the radical Protestants and the Roman Catholic leaders in the city, so the council members and of course the, the prince bishop so the 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 Roman Catholic leaders in the city they're They're protesting to Prince Bishop saying, hey, look, these guys are going crazy. What are you going to do? Like, you've tried to exile him out of the city. It didn't work. We're waiting for... They've they've just rampaged the city. They're burning books. We're waiting for what you're going to do, Prince Bishop. What are you going to do? So now they're waiting for for his response. And it looks like there's going to be a bloody conflict, right? So the Prince Bishop is going to muster some army is what probably the Roman Catholics are thinking. He's going to come into the town. And he's going to restore order somehow. Or he's going to, something's going to happen. That's going to be a bloody conflict. Well, what uh, Von Weed decides to do is retire. He's actually, an, his health is failing. The last thing he wants is some armed conflict in Munster. He, wants, he just wants to live out his life probably in peace, so he just retires. And that kind of subdues the tensions a little bit. The tempers subside. The brink of disaster is step back a little and uh, the successor to von Weed is Bishop Franz von Waldeck. He takes over the the other bishop's spot. The Catholics see Waldeck as a knight in shining armor, right? This is their chance to restore order in Munster. And Charles V, the again, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, has given Waldeck authority to... Quell the unrest in Munster. Actually, and in, in everything he owns, he's given him authority to to quell the unrest there. However, uh, Waldeck is more sympathetic to Lutherans than he is the Roman Catholics, which probably will well it has a huge impact on how he reacts to the radical Lutherans here in a little bit. And of course, the radical Lutherans or the Anabaptists, the radical Protestants saw him just as another political shill, right? He's just a shell. He's going to follow his bishop ways of gluttony and women and drinking. This is all, this is how they see the the prince bishops. And of course, Waldeck's no different in the in the radicals' eyes. So Waldeck is inherits uh, Munster, the land of course Munster's with that And now he has to decide what he's going to do with Munster. He's pretty much given a problem. Here you go. Fix this problem. He knows that we mentioned how well-defended Munster is with the walls and the moats. Waldeck knows this. And in trying to figure out what he's going to do with them, he knows that it's going to cost a fortune. If he is going to siege the town right now, it's going to cost him a fortune. And he doesn't want that. And he doesn't want bloodshed. Because if he goes in and destroys the town, remember, he's making... Uh, he's making money from the town. So if he goes in there and destroys everything, uh, he's got to rebuild all that. And he doesn't have the, the finances. or just, He's not willing to give the finances to do that. So he wants to keep Munster intact as destroying Munster is the last resort. So he wants to end this peacefully and with the least amount of money that he, he, he can spend to fix this problem. <clears throat> So in Waldeck's eyes, delayed is tactical and in his best interest, like we just said, for financially. But the radicals, the Anabaptists, see the delay as a boost to their their rebellion, right? Well, now they see that the authority is not going to do anything to them as they're agitating the town. And they're going to become more assertive or, or aggressive. They're going to start demanding higher lofty... Uh, goals for their movement. And it's, it's to remember too, Munster is not in itself the only town that's having this unrest, right? Everywhere. The the reformation is happening. It's spreading. There's unrest in a lot of towns. There's unrest in in the entirety of the home Roman Empire. Charles V is not just dealing with Munster. He's dealing with the Turks who are at the doorstep waiting to invade. Uh, He's dealing with France and he's dealing with other, other cities that are having to deal with some unrest because the Anabaptist movement is as other areas as well. Um, so this passive authority that Waldeck starts with just embrions the the radicals in Munster. And like I said, they start increasing their demands to the bishop, <clears throat> nipperdalling an act of rebellion to the Prince Bishop, he actually uh, assigns a bodyguard to Bernard Rothman and to himself and some of the other guys. And this is, this is a direct attack on the authority of the Prince Bishop. They're seizing control of their own group and, and with protecting themselves. So the, they're, they're splitting off from the civil magistrate and how the city would protect its citizens. So it's a direct assault on, on the Bishop's authority. And instigated from this passive authority by Waldeck, the radical Protestants, the Anabaptists, decide that they're going to they're gonna take away the ability for the Roman Catholics to practice their faith. So they're going to outlaw the Mass. They're going to outlaw anything that has to do with the traditional idea of the Roman Catholic faith, with praying to Mary, praying to the dead, any of that outlawed. Of course, while they're outlawing the mass, Rothman's own services. These radicals have their own church services, and it's probably what you would—it's it's what you would think of as a like a, a crazy Pentecostal church service where there's singing and screaming and dancing. And when they have uh, communion, it's it's the communion that's referenced in first, first Corinthians. They're getting drunk. There are these feasts. Every. Everything that communion shouldn't be is what they're doing. And a Roman Catholic that's witnessing what's happening says this. He says, uh, these, these services are, quote, practices, practices fit for Baal and Satan rather than acceptable ways of fellowship. So in these reports of what's happening in Munster, Charles V, it, it comes to Charles, v, Charles V's attention Munster and Charles V's, mind, Charles V's mind becomes a microcosm of the entire kingdom. So he sees Munster as, if he, can, if he can quell Munster, if he can bring peace and order back to Munster, he can do it to the rest of the kingdom. So he writes a letter to Prince Bishop urging him to, to fix this. Bring order back to Munster. Uh, do what you need to do. Do it peacefully if you can. Try everything you can to do it peacefully. And we'll go from there. It's a long letter. I won't read it. But the Bishop Waldeck forwards that to the city council of Munster. And as he forwards the letter to, to the city council, he already knows that the Lutherans are going to reject it because it's from Charles V. They're not going to accept anything from him. So as he forwards the letter to the council, the Prince Bishop Waldeck assembles a bunch of noble land, wealthy landowners and nobles in the area brings them to his palace to try to get support from them to bring order, to help them bring order back into Munster. And he's essentially planning a blockade, a potential blockade. If the city council rejects this letter that, he, that Charles V himself wrote to the prince bishop that he forwards to the council, if the council is going to reject that, then it's time for, for more drastic measures. <clears throat> and of course, 1532, the council ignores the letter. Uh, ignores Charles Vs letter that's forwarded, and Waldeck blockades the city. so again, Munster located in a strategic part, an economic uh, part of of Europe, and it's kind of well it's flat around Munster and then there's like a, there's terrain around it so so the blockades around the city, uh, but it's a very porous blockade. It's more. It's not a. It's not a serious. Let's starve everyone. It's more of an intimidation blockade. So the Prince Bishop wants to say, "Look, hey, uh, I have the power to do this, and I will take it further if I need to. But I don't want to. This is a show of force. So, but because it's porous, people can still get in and out. They can sneak in and out, and propaganda can sneak in and out real quick. So. Rothman's sermons, leaflets, are still getting out from Munster to their surrounding area in Germany and elsewhere. And those pamphlets and leaflets are actually calling others in the Anabaptist movement to come to Munster. So Munster is now being proclaimed as the area where Christ will return. The final battle will happen. Come to Munster. And these, these pamphlets and leaflets are getting out during this blockade. And people are answering and actually coming into the city through this blockade. Uh, that doesn't mean that the Prince Bishop isn't arresting people on their way in. He still is somewhat keeping the blockade uh, legitimate. And he's, he does arrest some men that are leaving Munster, for example, to sell some cattle and, and, and another... I can't remember where they're going. Um, but he, he arrests them, right? And of course, this... this infuriates the radicals uh, that, they would, that, that Prince Bishop would do this. <clears throat> so, so the city council, they, they see the Prince Bishop blockade in the city and they see the radicals becoming more angry at what Prince Bishop is doing. And they know that their days are numbered here. If the blockade gets any more strict, if it gets any worse, if, if he actually takes the blockade seriously, the city council knows that the, the city won't, uh, will eventually starve. And, in fact, the existence of the council itself could disappear. This is brand new. Uh, this is something that the prince bishops have allowed the cities to have to be a little more independent they're worried about their their actual existence right so they want they want to come to terms with the prince Bishop and end this blockade for the sake of the council and for the city so they go they they appeal to higher authority both in the church and in the civil uh, realm and they they Getting in touch with a man named Philip Hess, he's he's a Lutheran sympathizer, of course, and he has high personal integrity. He's well respected, and he's opposed to violence by any means. And they contact a man named Doctor Doctor Frederick von Wick. Remember that name, Doctor Frederick von Wick. Doc, Frederick von Wick. He becomes important later. He's an attorney from Bremen, and I get like I said. Both men are respected, both Philip of Hesse and uh, von Wick. So, like before, the conflict is coming to a head again, and it looks like there's no way to avoid a bloody conflict here in Munster. And it takes about five weeks, but in five weeks, Philip and and Dr. Wick work out a settlement, and that settlement is signed in 1533, and the blockade is lifted. So the first blockade of Munster is lifted. Well, the first blockade, the intimidation blockade is lifted. And here's what the settlement was agreed, what's, what was in the settlement that was agreed to. So in the city itself, there could be no more heretical preaching from Rothman. Now, the Prince Bishop before Waldeck tried to do the same thing, right? So we're seeing a pattern here. They keep trying, and, and to their credit, again, we go back to they don't want to destroy the city. Prince Bishop doesn't want to destroy the city. It's Muster is so wealthy. I mean, it is it is, it is a jewel in the crown of any prince bishop and and that's what he wants to, how he wants to keep it. So, no more heretical preaching from Rothman. The citizens have to obey the magistrates. They can't they can't just do what they want. They can't just separate themselves from the city magistrate. They can't have their own bodyguards, stuff like that. And property and goods that were seized and distributed need to be returned and restored to the owners, right? So private, prop- private property needs to be returned. So I mentioned that during the negotiations, during the blockade, Rothman's pamphlets and sermons were going out to, to the areas. And during the blockade, more and more radical followers were coming into Munster. They were, they were getting through the porous blockade, through the cracks and even as that settlement was agreed on in 1533, the first tenet of that settlement being that Rothman cannot preach heretical teachings. Well, guess what Rothman does? He doubles down on his heretical preaching. So now he's, now he's really focusing on the private property aspect. He's actually going to go as far as to say that the men are evil. Men's misery is directly stems from what they own. So he's going to start arguing that it's the environment that makes men evil, not the nature of man, and because of that, everyone needs to get rid of the private property again. <laughs> the prince bishop is not going to allow this, <clears throat> and the pamphlets that was the pamphlets that were getting through the blockade again. I, I mentioned they were calling the radicals in the Munster. Well, the way he was. Picturing Munster to these people is that it was a rich a rich city with plenty of supplies for everyone that could be spread out to everyone if you have need, come to Munster. this is where you need to be not only that, but this is where the return of Christ is going to happen in the apocalypse so obviously if you 're sending out ideas that Munster is rich and that you can have a part of it, well, guess who shows up people that aren 't rich and in fact. Most of them were criminals, desperate destitutes, uh, kind of the well, the bottom of the barrel, the the, the rabble that's just looking for uh, wh- whatever they can get. Right, they're scrounging around, so they're the ones that started coming in the Munster. And Ratham started calling Munster at this time the Kingdom of Zion, so the New Kingdom of Zion. Uh, there's a there's a cult in America that. Kind of use the same terminology for like Utah and stuff, right? So Rothman starts calling Munster the kingdom of Zion, and his followers are actually the company of Christ. So he starts really distinguishing the, the Anabaptists from, from both Protestants and Roman Catholics. So these, these despots are coming into, into Munster, no possessions, criminals, most of them. And they start they come in in the hundreds initially this is now this is after the blockade. They, they start trickling in the hundreds, and now they start trickling into the thousands and so many of them show up there's a huge majority of of these radicals they can actually now influence the city council where they 're going to actually hold a vote for an entire new board of twenty four members, and this is what they 're trying to do so they're trying to get rid of every single council member that was part of the settlement with the bishop initially during the blockade. So we can no longer have any moderate Lutherans on the council because they, they appeased the bishop. And they're going to go back to limiting uh, religious freedom in Munster by removing every single Catholic from the council as well. And that's exactly what they do. So they recall all the council members. They kick all the moderate Lutherans out. They kick all the Catholics out. And they're replaced by all radical Anabaptists. There's two new co-mayors. And these, these men are are of they're important, they're not huge important, but they, they are they play a, a a distinct role. These two new co-mayors, their names are Jasper Yodelfeld. Uh, uh, sorry, Jasper Yodfield and Herman Tilbrick. And they're both respected men. Uh, they they own businesses and they've been in town for a long time, so they're respected by the by the inhabitants of Munster. Anyway, <clears throat> Herman uh, Tilbeck was a Anabath- Anabaptist sympathizer, and he thought war was inevitable, and not because of where the politics were moving, but Again, this eschatological idea that Munster is the final place of the, the final battle where Christ should return, he thought war was inevitable in that sense. And, of course, Nipperdaling stays on the council. Nipperdaling is already a radical, and which he kept from his other council members. But he remains on the council. So now we have clear sides forming. We have Roman Catholics, we have Anabaptists, and we have the Prince-Bishop. And this is important because this is going to, as Munster degrades into anarchy, this will be important because we're going to see how those, these three sides interact with each other. Some of the, con- the consequences of the new council. The schools were controlled by the priests in Munster. They're, the priests are kicked out and they are given over, over to these radical Lutherans, these Anabaptists, to supervise these schools private property was taken from people and distributed to these these Anabaptists that show up the ones that are poor and destitute and criminals they are given food, clothing, and shelter and they're actually put to work doing civil projects mainly strengthening the walls of Munster which by now you could probably wonder why are they strengthening the walls of Munster? Why is that important? Well, they know what's coming, right? Private behavior our private behavior is becoming monitored, closely monitored, almost like almost like a Gestapo. There's almost a Gestapo around Munster that starts going around and making sure people are following this new moral code that is being established in Munster. And we'll get into what that moral code is and how it's shaped later. But there is a new moral code being shaped. And there is a police out there making sure people are following this code. Uh, if, there's, if there's any whisper of children misbehaving, it's investigated and punishments are given out in order. And again, they're instilling this new moral code. And the, the punishments initially uh, range from public whippings to jail uh, and even death, uh, death threats. So people are getting death threats for what they're doing. So the, what's happening is those that desired freedom... So we go back to 1532 in Nipper house with all these members there signing this pact, devoting their finances and reputations to kick out this tyrant, are becoming the tyrants. Way more so than the Prince Bishop ever would have been. Late, so now we're into late 1533. This is an important moment in in Munster because as Initially, the men coming into Munster were criminals and they, didn't have, they were poor, bottom of the barrel. What ends up happening is new, a group of new preachers come into Munster and with them they bring a bunch of wealthy people. So a bunch of wealthy people come with them. There's this huge, uh, large-scale baptism in Munster where th- I, think, I think thousands are baptized, including all these wealthy people who are baptized, join the movement and disperse all their wealth to, to the leaders in, in Munster as part of the movement. So they're, they, they're infused with cash for, and, and goods from these wealthy people coming in. <clears throat> and this is when Jan of Leiden shows up. So there's three people I need you to remember through this whole epic of Munster as we talk about it. And it's going to be Bernard Rothman, who we've been talking about, Jan Mathis, and Jan of Leiden. And this is when Jan of Leiden shows up, it's during uh, when these preachers are are coming in after uh, late 1533. And at this point, about one third of the population is certain that the second coming of Christ is imminent, and it's going to happen in Munster, and it's going to happen when they are attacked by the Prince Bishop. Jenna Leiden and others are forming paramilitary groups, again, separate from the civil magistrate, independent, doing what they want. Again, directly against the initial settlement that was reached during the blockade, right? So the city is, is spiraling. It's spiraling very quickly. And people are noticing that it's spiraling. One of the co-mayors, the new co-mayors, has seen where the city is going, Jasper Jodfeld sees that the city is spiraling. And he goes to the city council, this new city council. And in 1533, he tells them that he is going to exile Rothman from Munster. He, if Rothman goes, and Jasper, in Jasper's mind, so, so what happens to Rothman is what happens to Munster. It was probably too late at this point. I think what happened to Munster, the, the line had been crossed. But in Jasper's mind... Rothman needed to go. So what happened, he told his intentions to the council, those protecting Rothman go to on one side of the city or one, one building and those that want to exile Rothman in another, they're right next to each other and again, inside Munster, it looks like it's going to come to a, a bloody battle between the two sides. Before that could happen though, they decide that, well, if we do attack each other, we're actually going to let the, the Prince Bishop win. We don't want to do that. So they stand down. And actually, one of the conditions of that ceasefire between the two groups is that all in the city could worship again as they, free, as they choose. So they reestablished again freedom of religion. That's been taken away twice now by the radicals. So each time there's another ceasefire or settlement, they allow freedom of religion back. And, of course, they're going to take it away again. <clears throat> but part of the deal Part of the deal of the original blockade settlement with the prince Bishop is a man had to come in and replace Rothman as, as a preacher in the church. Uh, his name was Fa- uh, Fabricus. so Fabricus was preaching, of course Rothman's followers didn't like that. Eventually, Rothman's followers run Fabricus out of town. Rothman declares his innocence. Uh, it wasn't me, I didn't do it. They you know my followers I can't, I can't talk for my followers. Of course, it was probably Rothman that instigated everything. They run Fabricus out of town. So now we have three, three main parts of the settlement with the bishop that ended the blockade that had been trampled on. One, Bernard Rothman is preaching his heresy again, uh, the city magistrate is not running anything anymore. And now his preacher is being run out of the city. And the bishop at this point is absolutely furious. He's 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 steaming. He is enraged, and he summons. And he knows he knows the feeling of, of Jasper Yodfeld, uh, the, the co mayor. He knows his feelings on the matter. So he summons him and Doctor Wick, who was the orig- was the lawyer that originated the settlement to end the blockade. If you remember, Doctor Wick. So he summons both of them together. Uh, Jasper tells the city council uh, what his intentions are, and of course, Nipperdaling has to get involved, and Nipperdaling has a plan. He says he insists that two other men need to accompany Jasper or Jasper and uh, Dr. Uh, Wick. And he strategically picks two men that he knows the Prince Bishop will absolutely hate. Those two men, their names are Herman Redeker. And Tyle Busenmeister. <laughs> and the nickname for, for Tyle Busenmeister is Cyclops because he has one eye. And he's a massive, he's a massive dude. Uh, he's got huge muscles. He's tall. He's got one eye. He's got scars. He's got a rap sheet that is, I don't know, many guten press, guten, Gutenberg presses long. I mean, it, he was an intimidating character. And everyone knew his reputation as a criminal. And how do you forget a guy like that with one eye, right? So he assigns those two men with Jasper and Wick. Herman is known by the bishop because he actually sacked a Roman or a Roman Catholic church in a previous uprising. So he's known to the bishop because of what he did there. So both of these characters uh showing up to negotiate with the with the prince bishop is it is an insult. I mean, it, it is meant to be a joke that they aren't taking this seriously, and the Prince Bishop would know that. And that's why Nipperdaling suggested these two men. Did Jasper and Wick know that? Probably not. Um, they were probably intimidated uh, into taking these two men. And they probably hoped that the Prince Bishop would see past that and, and negotiating. But once they show up to the, gate, the, the palace gates where the Prince Bishop is residing, Prince Bishop doesn't even bother showing up to the gate. He's, the messengers tell him who's, who's coming. He knows that Herman's there. He knows that the, the Cyclops is there. And he doesn't even bother coming to the gate to tell him to turn around. He sends a messenger to tell them to turn around, that he's insulted, he's furious. And in fact, and, and to Dr. Wick himself, who the bishop knew, the bishop knew that he was a well-known uh, lawyer anyway, but he dealt with the bishop and the settlement of the blockade. So he, the messenger specifically tells Wick that he he is most insulted that Wick would, would tolerate the company of these two men, these two Low lives, as the bishop would see them as, and that in fact he, that Wick is placing his own life in danger. Now the question is: by that threat, is the prince bishop threatening Doctor Wick, or is he saying that the people he's with are going to possibly kill him? Well, we'll see here. Uh, pro- we'll see next week is when we'll know that. <clears throat> so back in Munster. During this engagement with the Prince Bishop and Jasper Wick and those other two, the reaction of the Prince Bishop uh, that the response of, of, of Waldeck, Bishop Waldeck brings elation to the Anabaptists. They see that, that it is inevitable now that the Bishop will come and attack the city and bring in the second coming of Christ. Their eschatological expectations are being met. And there's, there's uh, a fever pitch now, this, this eschatological high that is happening in the city and from this ecstasy that they're experiencing they decide that any non-believer including Roman Catholics especially Roman Catholics either need to leave the city or they need to be they need to join the Anabaptist movement the extreme radical the people in the Anabaptist group are actually calling for the execution because of this fervor that's going on and during this, during this fervor in February 1534, there's a, a, a particular convent in Munster that Bernard Rothman particularly hates. And even before this event in Munster is happening, he has said some nasty things about this covenant 20 years earlier. But he goes up to this particular co- uh, convent and he, lays, he prophesies judgment on this convent that at midnight that day, or midnight, coming up midnight. Uh, the Lord will destroy this convent and all that are in it. And I, if you heard, if you heard uh, Rothman say this prophecy, he would say it much more convincingly than I'm saying it, because he he terrifies a lot of the nuns that are in there. Most of them leave, some stay, and of course a crowd gathers around this convent, waiting for midnight when the Lord will come and destroy it. Eleven fifty nine, midnight. Nothing happens. You would you would think, right? Well, if Bernard, if Rothman is prophesying this, and it doesn't happen, well, the movement's over, right? Well, Rothman's a smart guy. He he. Well, he obviously knew this wouldn't happen, and he's a smart guy. He was ready for this. Without skipping a beat, he quotes Jonah. And this is Rothman. This is a quote from Rothman. Jonah foretold that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days, but the inhabitants repented and the city remained standing. The anger of the heavenly father has been allayed. So the nuns obviously have repented and the Lord has relented. And now we can, we can, the spotlight is no longer on me, but the mercy of, of God and his, his mantle of prophet remains intact and Rothman can keep on agitating in Munster. That's where we're gonna to end tonight. Uh, join me in a, in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us again to meet this evening. I hope that as we are going through this, we can see uh, some the, the mass errors that even though we look at this and think, well we would never we would never do this, we would never become like this, we would never become deluded, delusional we're falling the judgment like these people we need to remember that as long as we are in scripture and are earnestly following and being obedient as the lord commands in our church under the the headship of elders and in teaching and uh, that we stay humble and that we are safe from these delusions and that we we stay in the truth and I, I pray that for for all of us as we as we look at this study and we pray these things in christ's name amen